Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. podcast a podcast where we discuss everything that's spinning around in the dynamic world of music no pun intended my name is aiden claire you know me uh vassal of the trap game in subservience to uh king of the trap game sam dow sam how are you doing i'm doing spinningly (laughs) we got a big show planned today yeah we got a a special segment by that i mean we actually planned today (laughs) barely Everything, like, this was probably the most procrastinated episode prep that we've done. <laughs> yeah, we, we did an amount of prep that took a long time, and then we literally prepared everything two minutes before we recorded. Yeah, all the links. We, we, all the effort of preparing went into, like, a few specific things, and it's like, oh, shit, we forgot to do the other nine things to prepare. Yeah, well, I so just for context concerning everything leading up to this episode... I had this really weird week where I just like lost all of my creative drive whatsoever. And I was just like sitting in my room, eating ketchup chips and watching videos about old Star Wars lore that isn't even canon anymore. And then uh, I tried to make a few compositions. Most of them were just like garbage and then I gave up. And then, so for, for the first time in a little while since the pandemic started, I actually stopped doing a day by day composition per day, which is what I've been doing for a little while since the pandemic started. And sit, for a little while, it was kind of depressing because I didn't fulfill that routine this last uh, week or so. How was your week? <laughs> um, My week was... It was a bit busy, but mostly uneventful. I also got back into a little bit of music production. I dabbled in some music, specifically through our feature segment of this episode with our our covering of of each other's songs. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'm not sure if uh, we've mentioned yet, but the special segment that we have planned for this particular podcast is that we decided to cover each of our respective uh, person's songs. That doesn't sound right. It sounds like we cover our own songs. We covered each other's we, songs. That should be next week. We cover our own songs. Yeah, I guess. But that would that be a cover, though? Would it, it would just be um, like a re-rendition or rearrangement. Tell That'd be what, interesting, I'll, though. I'll do a cover of what you covered of my song. Oh, I have an idea. Versa. I have an idea. What if we covered something in our discography that's like really, really old, and we try to modernize it a bit with the hindsight that we've developed as musicians, and now we are okay, trying to... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You would be diving into some the light waves shit. The light waves are like I'm thinking like uh oh, even further home, back uh 2013. Uh what's the one uh, I'm not sure if there's anything The Billy for... Mays experience? <laughs> the Billy Mays experience. Yeah, at some point we should actually do uh this is this should be a different thing, but we should actually uh revise some of the tracks on the Billy Mays experience because a lot of them were like there were some kernels of good ideas, but we had no yeah. idea what we were doing. So I was thinking about that. That was our when we briefly were in the the game studio biz. Yeah, uh, prologue entertainment. <laughs> yeah, where we tried to make a single iPhone game that uh, we never finished or barely started. To provide some exposition of the spin this canon, 
I think that's actually how our friendship began is that we were we were going to do uh, prologue yeah prologue software or prologue entertainment and then clarity <laughs> games was the was the name when i joined i mean i i like the the pun but i i didn't like yeah. that that it was named after me yeah but um i actually watched one of the demos that we did of project onslaught and it looked like yeah. not terrible i'm not sure how yeah it it, uh it would have, I would have been curious to play it on an actual iPhone. It seemed like it was the one level that it looked like it mostly worked other than the finishing touches. So to provide more narration to uh, those who are not familiar with the lore of our friendship, Project Onslaught was a top-down shooter video game. It was modeled on GigaWing, which was a Sega Genesis game. I think it was ported to the Sega Genesis. It was originally based on an arcade game. And there was a version out on an emulator that I played the shit out of. It's notorious for being kind of ridiculously challenging. Like it's impossible to like beat. It's it's really just like a game that you play for the adrenaline rush. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, I like the concept of it. The thing about Project Onslaught, and I didn't really anticipate that I'd be talking about it. It was like too ambitious for three person project. And also all, I think all three of us kind of like lost interest in it after a little while. Who do you consider the third of when you say three? Because uh, there was, was technically four. Yeah, there was there was actually there was technically four, but yeah. um, I think early on Groggy decided that he was not. <laughs> I'm not sure if he consciously decided it, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you literally can't build a website, or if you literally can't yeah, the ten tens of thousands of lines of code that he did in a single night, which were actually a free website yeah. tool, literally freewebs.com. It wasn't even yeah. like Wix or the good shit. I'm not sure if Wix yeah. existed in 2012, but uh, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, yeah. So uh, he was but out. Although he he was he did the, he was working on the Android version of the game. According to him, he did a lot of work on it because you and I, mostly you, you did the the bulk of the coding stuff. Uh, but we had a thing that worked. We had the showerhead launcher briefly. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. And then uh, when we asked him his progress, he had made the physical app part of it uh and made an icon that was attached to that app yes that took him weeks uh and then when i was like well i wonder how long that would actually take and i started making an app on my computer in the opening when you start up the project choosing the icon was part of like the tutorial of setting up a project to be fair eventually i did a lot of fucking coding for that over the summer between grade 11 and grade 12 and yeah. it became clear to me that it was like too ambitious of a project for one person to let's say you were like somebody who wanted to write a science fiction story and you wanted to actually like create it but you didn't have the budget or the production for it and so you tried to make a bad homemade cg hybrid with bad chroma keying and like weird special effects and shit like that that's what it became after a little while the actual gameplay mechanics became a lot more complicated than than i think i was equipped with the code to uh or the coding knowledge to to tackle yeah and i feel like the iphone tools are not what i imagine they would be today yeah it was it was definitely a steep learning curve at least for me yeah, well, I'm not sure uh, if what we were doing was the most efficient way of doing it. I also feel like the the level of work to accomplishment ratio was because <laughs> I yeah. feel like I would uh, I remember I was I would in, be in my basement programming in my basement with uh, that little like TV where my computer was 
that little monitor and I would code for hours and hours and hours only to get like one minor thing done. <laughs> yeah. Like getting the, uh, like one of the bigger ships to explode or something like that after a certain amount of hits yeah. or something like that. So I'm hoping that iPhone development, especially pertaining to games, has uh, you know improved over time. But I guess that's one of the reasons why uh, game studios have five developers or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on a related note, the Billy Mays experience, which yeah. was the music division for the game, uh, was essentially where our musical friendship began as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think we had four officially completed tracks. Or no, we uh, we had we had not a lot of tracks, but uh, I did two, and then you did another two, and then you had a couple that were like the unfinished. Like the one thing that, that sticks out to me the most was uh, "Here Comes the Shire Folk," yeah, which was a very, it was like a ten second clip because it wasn't finished, <laughs> but I really really loved the ten seconds of audio. Maybe that'll be the outro for this episode. It's interesting because um, I did not like my own contributions to it because I didn't really know how to use GarageBand, which is kind of pathetic, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like anybody could figure out how to use GarageBand, but up until then, I didn't really record any music or know how to do any musical recording. I, you know, played music, uh, but I've never tried to record or produce anything in the past. So it's kind of interesting looking back. Uh, it can be encouraging to see how far you've come from knowing literally nothing to knowing some things. Yeah. Well, what, I remember when I made some of those tracks, I didn't have a, uh, a MIDI keyboard or anything. Uh, and I don't think I was aware of the Command K keyboard, or I just insisted on doing it by hand. Because I remember when I figured out something I wanted as a melody for a track, actually manually putting the notes on a uh, uh, musical staff in the MIDI instruments for some of those tracks, at least, at least the earlier ones. Oh, yeah. You didn't even use like a piano roll or anything like that. Like you didn't you didn't draw in the no, notes. No, I didn't. I didn't on a staff. I didn't understand the piano roll stuff, so I I did the this sort of score section where I was putting the eighth notes on a on a musical staff. You know, I actually around the time we were doing Project Onslaught, I had another app idea of something like that where you compose music on an actual staff. It's funny because there wasn't a lot of stuff like that available for mobile devices like the iPhone and the iPad. Of course, things like Sibelius or um, MuseScore or uh, Finale yeah. existed, but it, like it was actual computer software. Like it wasn't a iPhone app or an Android app. But now I feel like there's probably a million of those things that exist. Uh, yeah. It's funny, like I feel like if I had jumped on that and actually made like a simple uh, staff, like a manuscript paper composition app, then maybe <laughs> that would have been much more successful than whatever Project Onslaught would have become had it been finished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I retroactively claim that idea. And uh, everybody who has... If this isn't proof entered... enough that you invented the idea back in 2012, but just didn't make it, then I don't know. I don't know what can convince people. Yeah. Well, if uh, if they have a problem with that, I expect gratuities for my idea. And uh, anybody who has problems with that can uh, talk to my lawyer, bitch. You heard the man. <laughs> anyway, so uh, how did we get onto this topic? Oh, we were talking about uh, old music. Billy that we May's made. experience. Billy, Billy May's and experience. Old music, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because we I, I do like covering. the idea of of re revamping some of our older music in our sort of more modern styles. 
Yeah, because uh, a lot of the stuff that I made, there were some kind of interesting compositional ideas, but the production was just awful. So I would love yeah. to revise that and also better access to different MIDI instruments and stuff like that. Yeah. And a new guitar embossed with greatness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe Pass himself uh, embossed that signature in the manufacturing process. Should we get on to some uh, some news and commentary? Absolutely. So it looks like uh, Tidal, which was famous for being a so-called streaming platform that had high quality streaming material, which um, is kind of interesting because I don't know what people mean by high quality. I guess it's like a lossless type codec, but whatever. Flack. Yeah, flack. <laughs> Another piece of mythology <laughs> right there. That's what they were kind of known for. Um, it looks like they've been accused of kind of cooking their own numbers a bit in terms of the amount of streams directed at uh, some of their bigger sponsors, I guess, some of their bigger records. And I'm talking, of course, about Beyonce and Kanye West. I think at some point uh, Jay-Z had attached himself to the title streaming service as well. At least that's what I remember during the launch of the service and then I haven't really heard a lot of, about from title since then. Uh, I'm not sure how many people actually use it in comparison to the other big streaming platforms but uh, anyway what they've been accused of is uh, you know cooking their numbers because what that would mean is that uh, if they receive more streams if you'll remember back to past podcast it means that they actually receive more um, uh, performing rights royalties and if it's true that they cook those numbers then then technically they're engaging in an, a bit of a fraud type uh, scenario um, yeah. especially if title has a vested interest in having these albums uh, or singles have a higher play count i'm not sure what title benefits from i'm not sure if they have advertisements or whether they have you know publishers who collect portions of the revenue and i think there's there's interesting because since titles launched there's been a lot of accusations levied against them like the fact that they have been late to pay people for the royalties related to streaming material on their service uh so i think it's uh it's kind of interesting because um, on one hand, I'm not sure how relevant title really is or, or how much uh, longevity it's going to have, but it's kind of sketchy. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of a sketchy yeah. thing to do and potentially fraudulent as well. <laughs> yeah. I'll say this is the first I've really heard anything about Tidal. Mm -hmm. I wasn't familiar with them as a streaming service. And yeah, what you said about the it essentially being, you know, fraud financially with uh, the royalty payment and stuff. And it, it kind of reminds me of, of what we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago with Justin Bieber asking people to listen to his music while they're asleep, mm -hmm. or at least turning on the music while they're asleep and not listening to it. Yeah. Even though that's a scummy thing to do, that is essentially the same result, but more legal. People aren't faking the numbers. Technically, the numbers are there, but in this case, a song is reported to be doing better or worse than it actually was and then m more money is being paid out accordingly yeah or I more mean, publicity or promotion from it uh, i'm not sure exactly what title has to gain assuming that people like kanye west or beyonce have like a partnership agreement with title then i could see how maybe they would want to artificially bolster their stats but in regards to justin bieber i think this is slightly worse because uh, Justin Bieber's fans have the agency to say whether or not they want to 
uh, yeah. know, play those songs <laughs> overnight while they sleep and indoctrinate themselves into whatever cryptic uh, message uh, Justin Bieber is trying to say in his uh, weird uh, psychosexual fantasy. But um, in, in this case, I think it's more of like if you were a performing, performing rights organization like the ones that we had alluded to in the past, like SOCAN or ASCAP or BMI, and you had seen that, oh, these, you know, these artists had been played a certain amount of time on this streaming platform, and you then allocate a certain degree of uh, royalties, which they are entitled to, to them, then technically the uh, streaming service is engaging in fraud. And I'm assuming that they receive some portion of revenue. This They, I mean the streaming service. Yeah, if they're uh, partnered with some of these big big time artists yeah yeah so it looks like a weird kind of uh, a weird thing and it's like i don't know why they would go they, they would even bother because i mean maybe they're trying to like hang on to whatever vestige of existence they still have because i'm not really yeah. sure who uses title like really who uses it i, I yeah can, i you didn't, I didn't know, it know existed. <laughs> yeah does it have all the music on it like the same music that i could get on spotify well i know that or is so it just these artists that I don't really listen to anyways. Well, uh, I use DistroKid in order to put my music on places like Spotify and iTunes, etc. And I don't think you publish to title. I think you actually have to pay a little extra to publish to title. So that's weird because it's um, for a uh, streaming service that is not especially amongst the, the bigger streaming services like Apple Music and Spotify and all of these other services, I'm surprised that they would put up that artificial barrier for others to listen to their tracks. Um, I'm actually, yeah, does it, can you put it on, on title? I actually want to check. I'm going to do some live research to see if you can uh, publish your music. So it looks like I've published my music to Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Google Play, and Deezer. I don't even know what Deezer is, but apparently it's a big streaming platform. There's nothing there about title. I don't remember ever having a option to publish it to title unless it was like a a premium deal type thing. So yeah, I don't even know who the fuck yeah. uses title. And also I know that it's a premium service, so you're paying quite a bit of money. It's prefaced on the notion that you're receiving high quality audio. I'm not sure if anybody uses Spotify actually has a problem with their audio because this is a separate rant entirely. But if you're listening to lossless codec files on your phone or whatever, as, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, you're wasting space on your phone. Right. My, my thing is, yeah, number one, it's wasting space on your phone. Number two, I'm listening with shitty knockoff iPhone headphones where I'm just wasting having all this high quality shit by listening through mediocre headphones. Yeah. Rick Beato did a video where he uh, challenged producers to tell the difference between levels of audio compression, like not uh, dynamic range compression. And there was n no way you can tell the difference between a 320 kilobytes per second MP3 or even like a variable rate encoding MP3, which is the V0 uh, MP3, and a lossless file, like a wave or a flack. That's basically all I wanted to say. Um, it's sort of like the vinyl thing. Like, it's nice to collect vinyls, mm. and I think vinyl kind of has its own sound, which is really cool. But um, there's nothing objectively better about vinyl. I mean, I guess you could say that it's like continuous engraving of the sound within the grooves. There's no loss because you don't have to, like, digitize the waveform and do, like, Fourier transform or whatever the fuck. Uh, but yeah. uh, 
I, I, I challenge anybody to actually tell me what the big difference between a wave file or like a FLAC file, M4A or anything like that, or lossless codec, and a 320 kilobytes per second MP3, which is, you know, probably the most uh, common MP3 file you get out there. Yeah. I think that this podcast is released in that format, the 320 MP3. What I usually do is I usually put it up as a wave because if people don't, oh. yeah, well, I usually put up, uh, usually when you do like a, um, when you upload to like a service or anything like that, if somebody downloads it as an MP3, then technically they're adding another layer of compression to it, which does result in some signal loss. It probably wouldn't be that much signal loss, to be honest. Uh, so, I mean, mm. I could probably put it up in a 320 kilobytes per second MP3 and even well, if I thought that specifically it. with the uh, the Spotify submission requirements, it had if you it wouldn't work with the whole RSS feed if it wasn't in MP3 format. Nope, that's I why always, I thought it had to be. I always upload as a uh, linear PCM wave or po hmm. linear pulse code modulation wave. Now I'm not sure if yeah. SoundCloud once it is uploaded there. I'm not sure if the actual broadcast, like what you're hearing on SoundCloud, is some form of compressed file, like what they do on YouTube. Yeah. Like even if you put something up on YouTube that's a high quality file, when you're actually watching the video on YouTube, obviously the version that you're listening to is is a uh, compressed rendition. And a lot of people complain about the sound quality of YouTube compression, right? But that more yeah. has to do with services they use to extract music off of YouTube, like YouTube to MP3 and shit. But I mean, it is yeah. a, it is a compressed file because you know you don't want to like sit there and wait ages for a lossless file to buffer over whatever server that uh, YouTube is using to host that video. So, I mean, it's well, just... I think uh, SoundCloud it might be the original file. I know that if you make a file downloadable, it'll be essentially that original file that you're downloading. Like if you, all, the whole naming convention of the file, the same format that it's in. Yeah. So when it comes to like actually hosting the file, like I, I know that SoundCloud actually hosts, hosts the original file of whatever you uploaded and it's original so file size. Would it, would it be like making an MP3 version that it stores specifically for streaming, for example? That's, that's what I'm conjecturing, but I don't know if that's the case. Hmm. Because what I'm thinking is that in order to reduce the level of bandwidth that they use... They, they make like a broadcast, a compressed broadcast yeah. format because that way that they would cut down on the amount of, but I, I don't know if that's the case. Like I'm just, this is just a wild conjecture. It, it seems like that would be the most, uh, the plausible explanation. But again, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I was thinking that our episodes, I don't think they're technically downloadable from SoundCloud. And I thought that in general they should be, but if they're... Oh giant wave files i don't know if that's the same level of convenience if it was just downloading a moderately sized mp3 well i can put it up as a, an mp3 and see how it goes i'm glad you brought that up because we should probably make those files downloadable anyway because I, I used a, like a soundcloud to mp3 downloader to get our previous episode just so i would have a copy of it generally on, on the occasions where i have followed podcasts through soundcloud i would usually download them as an mp3 so i could listen to them offline okay so i'd be listening on my phone and i didn't have any soundcloud app on my phone at that time i see 
our high quality streaming format is encoded in 256 kilobytes per second AAC, equivalent to an MP3 encoded in 320 kilobytes per second. So it, that's what that's what it is. It is what you hear. What is streamed is actually 256 kilobytes per second AAC. Well, if they downloaded it, um, it's not gonna. There's not gonna be any loss between what is originally compressed when the file is bounced and when they listen to it because they're yeah. they're downloading the original file. The only loss would be when they actually listen to the broadcast, but that loss uh, that loss will probably be very negligible. Right. Yeah. So I, mean, I think I'll just probably export it as an MP3 next time. Yeah. Just I know I personally if I'm following a podcast that's only on SoundCloud, I'll download the episodes because yeah. I don't have enough cellular data to listen to it in general when I'm on my phone. Yeah. And I don't think I think you have to pay to have like a the to save SoundCloud tracks on your on the app. Yeah. Uh wait, you mean to to, to like if you want to have it for one? offline listening so that you don't have to be in oh. use cellular data or similar to Spotify. Yeah, we know. have the actually... Spotify premium version where I can download songs uh to listen to offline. Yeah, I um I actually I don't think I have the SoundCloud app. I haven't I haven't tried to use any kind of like offline version. I'll say I did get the SoundCloud app last week. I think I mentioned it in the previous podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, since having the app, on occasion, it'll send a push notification when an artist that you follow uploads a new track. Obviously, it doesn't do it every single time that anyone does anything or else you do never stop. For some reason, for some goddamn reason, the only artist that is notifying me when they have a new track is uh guillaume lequin <laughs> i was just about to say i get emails every day from Bandcamp because i followed him on Bandcamp. literally yeah. every day do something like yeah I, LeClain. I, uh, I wish i'd done it before but i kept thinking i should screenshot every single one of these but then and then just compile all of these uh notifications of uh his tracks but I then him. i would have 1500 <laughs> screenshots for every song that he uploads yeah and i don't even think i get all of the notifications from zobos i probably only get half of them because he uploads two tracks a day yeah so and uh i actually followed him on Bandcamp, but yeah. i i thought that there was a feature where i thought that i had checked off the feature where you don't receive an email every time they they publish a new track but then again i don't know i guess that would defeat the purpose of following them uh, I don't know. I have to say, uh, I listened to a lot of his stuff. Was it last podcast or the podcast before where we talked about Guillaume Lequin? I think it was last podcast. Yeah. So I, since last podcast, uh, I listened to a lot of his stuff and it's like really cool shit. And he's really prolific, which I dig. But that's that's great. I mean, like I, I've i listened to uh, stuff from the beginning of his discography and then the, the later, the more recent stuff that was published. And uh, it's cool. You can see some developments in his uh, guitar technique and... Uh, his choice of harmony and stuff like that but it's good it's very uh interesting harmonically challenging composition earlier you mentioned that you had music on spotify mm -hmm. which i couldn't find by searching it on spotify but when i did search aiden claire on spotify uh it pulls the music that i have on my computer locally as well i guess because oh, yeah. uh, i can see one of the tracks that shows up is an evening with quasi smoothness <laughs> or an evening of quasi smoothness oh yeah that's when I was like climbing jack, jazz. And I had yeah. no idea about jazz harmony or anything like that. It's I very, uh, yeah, it's quasi smoothness. Yeah. Well, I think I recorded that one back when I had that little Behringer USB interface. I, I actually, 
I think that one stopped working after a little while, which was kind of a shame because I was surprised by the audio quality of that. Basically, it's like it was that little kind of like white pod interface where you plug your, oh, yeah. you plug your uh, quarter inch jack or your uh, XLR right into it, and then it plugs right into the USB. Actually, I think it was designed specifically for a guitar, so I wouldn't, su- I wouldn't mm. be surprised if it was actually just a quarter inch jack in there. But uh, I, I have a, a Behringer interface that I'm using right now. This one, it has two inputs on it. One of them can take a mic cable or instrument cable, and the second one is just instrument cable, okay. which I thought was a weird, random distinction. And Like, why not make both of them both? But this one, it's pretty good experience that I've had with it. The other ones that I've had have been a little more prone to having static feedback to it. Yeah, like self-noise. Seems to be pretty good. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've been using the Focusrite, uh, the Scarlet Tune 2 for a little while and it's uh, like I said earlier in the podcast I have the the preamp almost all the way up and uh, there's actually not a lot of self noise I think there's a like I said earlier there's a threshold level where if you like put it like all the way up you'll start hearing uh, quite a bit of a noise floor but yeah. uh, I mean this is pretty good for the gain that I'm getting I've got a small personal music related story hit me up so this is a, a difficult this, this is a difficult topic to talk about, but I'm afraid I have somewhat of a big head. When I wear hats, uh, it's hard to buy a hat because my hats never fit. And I feel that when I wear over the over the head headphones, the ones that go over your ears, that encase your entire ear. Yeah, yeah. I've had very few pairs of headphones or different types of headphones that I can use because I feel it's uncomfortable for my for my head. But I have uh, the pair that I'm wearing right now are Sennheiser headphones. You've probably seen them before. Uh, they're HD 206 headphones. They're comfortable to wear, and I've never had a pair that was comfortable to wear before. So every time these headphones break, I'll buy the same pair again. So maybe over the past seven years, I've bought five or six pairs of these. Usually they break in different ways. Sometimes they just sort of, the actual, you know, audio emitting part breaks off or the the jack part will break off. And I didn't have a working pair of headphones at the beginning of quarantine. So I, I realized that I had enough of these headphones laying around that I had the pieces where I could assemble together a fully working pair of headphones from all these broken headphones. Nice. So I did that and I was able to take the broken, the part, the one of the broken jack, I was able to salvage the connectedness of the, the screws and shit that make up the, that hold the whole configuration together and put that on a piece where the, you know, that head part had just snapped. I was able to make a working pair of headphones. And then within like a week or two, I stepped on them and uh, it broke. <laughs> So, I'm, and I'm still wearing the headphones now. I, I masking taped up the broken side and it wasn't pretty and it doesn't sit perfectly, but it was good enough. And then I, I stepped on them again I, and they broke again. I imagine right now you look like some kind of cyberpunk hacker in like a dystopian future in like this dilapidated little room who has all this like tech that's like worn down and he's like trying to modernize it's not like a a high concept sci-fi it's more of like a a low-tech lo-fi type william gibson scenario going on i think i think it's supposed to be 
the high-tech sci-fi, but done on a low budget. Yeah, it's what you always say. We're living in the future. Yeah. Uh, I have a uh, similar project that I'm going to be eventually embroiled in soon. Tell me about uh, it. So what happened was uh, before the quarantine, I ordered some USB-B jacks, like the USB-B uh, jack, like the female end. Uh, oh, yeah. The ones that have the four pins on them, so you actually have to like solder them onto a, a breadboard or whatever. Yeah. And the reason why I ordered those was because uh, my nice, beautiful Casio CTK3200 keyboard has everything working except for its USB functionality, which uh, is driving me crazy uh, because I have to use the fucking Command K keyboard and I loathe the Command K keyboard. Uh, And I, I loathe having to fucking move notes around on the goddamn piano roll like oh yeah. you would have no you have no idea how productive i would be i would be registered for socan by now <laughs> if i had gotten all the composing out of the way that i wanted to uh with my fucking keyboard working like there are so many compositions where i don't want to touch them because i know that it's going to take them it's going to take me like years and years and years to try and work on them manually shifting the notes around without actually having to uh play them and record them as uh, midi information onto my computer with my keyboard. Yeah. So what I've done is I've actually ordered some USB-B uh, jacks off of Amazon, which was kind of insane. Like, oh my God, the process is insane. Like I have Amazon Prime and the only jacks that were available on Amazon, you would either have to order them like locally from Canada and thus not pay for, for any shipping costs and then have to wait until August in order to receive the fucking USB-B jack. Or you could... For some reason, and I don't know why, you could pay the shipping and for some reason have it have it get to you on Tuesday. Now, there, there's a million reasons why this could be, right? It could be shipping from like Edmonton or some shit, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's it was uniformly across the board with every uh, link I clicked on. For a pack of five USB-B female replacement jacks, you either uh, bite the bullet and pay a shipping cost, which ended up being like with GST and shipping and the actual subtotal cost of the item it was like $20 to order a fucking mm. tiny ass USB B female jack and I'm not paying $20 just to expedite the process uh, yeah. and I, I'm sure as hell not waiting until August in order to uh, uh, like oh my tiny ass little USB female jack has finally appeared thankfully I found one that's going to uh, ship but it's not it doesn't come in a pack you literally get the one usb b female jack like that's the only yeah one opportunity yeah exactly that that's uh that's exactly what eminem was alluding to the usb b jack yeah to fix his his uh his casio keyboard yeah he knows what's really important in this world yeah once i get that man i'm just gonna be like uh doing shit like crazy nothing's gonna get in my way nothing will get in my Shall we proceed to the main feature topic? Yeah, let's do this thing. So Cover Songs is next? Cover Songs. Yeah. All right, let's do this thing. So I have a big list of songs, of random cover songs that I think are good and arguably considered better than the original. Some of them more than others. You're wrong. Um, I'm wrong. All right. No, I was kidding. Oh. I was I was want to pre- preempt that saying that okay. uh, you're wrong. So one of my favorite songs of all time, and I would make an argument for it being my favorite song of all time, is Blinded by the Light, the Manfred Mann version. Really? Yes, really. Hmm. 
The original is by Bruce Springsteen, and I prefer the Manfred Mann version. And it had much wider critical acclaim and billboard toppingness than the Bruce Springsteen version. I know my mother would call that blasphemy, um, but I stand by it. You stand that song. I do stand that song. I really do. And Manfred Mann also does a cover of the song For You, another Bruce Springsteen song. But I will say the Bruce Springsteen version is better in that case. I will, I'll give that to my mother and Bruce. Huh. A couple other songs I have on my list of more recent years discovering. There's the song I Will Survive that Cake does a version of. And I love the Cake version of it. Yeah. Cake uh, underrated band. Yeah. And I think that I wouldn't call that better than the original because the original is so famous. I do prefer the Cake version because I like Cake as a band. The original artist is Gloria Gaynor. I don't really know much of her music other than she originally performed the I Will Survive song. Another one that I have on here that I want to ask you if you would consider it a cover song. The song is All the Young Dudes by Mott the Hoople which was originally written by David Bowie, but he wrote the song specifically for the band Mott the Hoople. But then David Bowie, then he does a version of that song that he wrote, but he wrote it for another band who released the original version of the song. Um, so does that count as a cover version? I don't know, really. That's a good question. Shit. Well, I mean, like, there's there's two answers to that question. Uh, I think that, like, if he wrote that the song specifically for the band, then I, don't, I wouldn't, like, personally consider... The, uh, what was it called? Mata Hoople? Is yeah. that what they're called? I, I recognize the song. I've probably listened to it before. But yeah. um, I would consider that to not be a cover version. Because a cover... Uh, so David Bowie did the cover when he played his own written song. See, this is where we kind of like get into the weeds <laughs> a bit. Because like a cover can be an interpretation of a performance. And it can also be an interpretation of the, the text or of the composition right it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. have to be an interpretation of the performance and i think there are a lot of covers that strip away the kind of excess elements uh, i'll probably talk about it when i allude to some of my favorite covers and just refer to the lyrics themselves i don't know in this case uh, it's a good question i would say that um was his version the cover i don't know i mean that's a good question i would say I probably think not yeah, I th it's it's a weird specific circumstance, and I would definitely say that I say neither versions are covers. Yeah, neither is a cover really. It's just that they performed a song written by a much more famous person, and then he also did a version of that song later on. Mm -hmm. When I hear Bowie's version, it sounds like just another Bowie song, whereas the Mott the Hoople version of All the Young Dudes is an amazing song. I would put that high up there on of my all-time favorite songs Very along cool. with blinded by the B blinded by the light manfred man so last week we mentioned all along the watchtower Jimi hendrix originally by bob dylan mm -hmm. I, I don't know that i've actually ever heard the bob dylan version but the Jimi hendrix version is certainly one of my favorite hendrix songs yeah. uh, and i would say that that one's arguably more famous and probably better than the bob dylan one I could be entirely wrong. The Bob Dylan one could be a masterpiece, and I'm just not really aware of it. I could be wrong about this. We could probably corroborate this claim. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in the last episode, but I believe All Along the Watchtower was neither originally a Bob Dylan or a Jimi Hendrix original song. I think originally it was um, it's a rendition of a traditional song, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but And I could be wrong about that, but I think it was written before Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix got a hold of it. Interesting. I will Google this. To corroborate that claim? I, I'd actually like to learn this because uh, my memory is vague concerning this particular song. 
All Along the Watchtower is a song written and recorded by American singer-songwriter Bob Dylan. Oh, really? The song initially appeared on his 1967 album, John Wesley Harding. That's interesting. What song am I thinking of then? Because uh, there's a song that uh, it was either done by Bob Dylan and or Jimi Hendrix that was... Uh, it's not... It must not have Bob been Bob Dylan does have an amount that are more like folk songs yeah. that wouldn't surprise me if they were sort of unknown origin songs. Okay. Speaking of traditional folk songs, there's a song called In the Pines, or sometimes known as Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Nirvana does a really awesome cover of that song as a live version that they did on their MTV Unplugged album. The original writer of the song is kind of unknown. It's like a traditional folk song. Lead Belly does one of the more, I guess, well-known versions of that song and where sort of Nirvana's version is mostly based off of. And of that same album of Nirvana, the live album, they did a a live version of The Man Who Sold the World, again by David Bowie. Yeah. That one's pretty good. That was the first, before I was really into Bowie, I was into Nirvana, and that was the first time I'd heard that song. So I was familiar with the Nirvana version before the original. Yeah, I'm I'm not a a huge Nirvana fan. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Uh, I'm not a huge Mm -hmm. Nirvana fan, but in this particular case, I'd say that I actually prefer Kurt Cobain's interpretation of that particular song over the original. Uh, I like the original song. I definitely, it's hard to say which one I prefer because I like the Nirvana one so much, but it's David Bowie. How can you not prefer David Bowie, even though I already preferred a different version over him in the same list? Of Bowie's discography, uh, especially of his earlier discography, that's probably the the album slash a group of songs that I've listened to the least. Um, yeah, I will say I don't really know the Man Who Sold the World album that well. Yeah. I, I mainly only know the, the title track. The degree to which I'm married to that opinion is very tenuous. So, uh, Speaking of other bands that you're not a huge fan of, Pearl Jam does a cover of the song Last Kiss, originally by Wayne on. Cochran. No, hold on. <laughs> Pearl Jam are a fine band. I just you just don't like the fine. sound of Eddie Vedder's voice. Mm, I, I've never, I've I've always thought that. I mean, it has a particular idiosyncrasy that I've never been a fan of. Uh, I I know that he can definitely sing on key. Uh, he can reach the notes that he's getting for. It, it's more of like a uh, a timbre thing, but. You know, I've actually come around. On the record right now, do you like Pearl Jam or not? Yes, I I think they're fine. Okay. Uh, I actually will say, though, I've come around quite a bit on um, uh, Eddie Vedder, and it more so has to do with his work on Pearl Jam. But uh, I will say a lot of his um, solo work, uh, his singing, uh, I I won't necessarily say it has improved, but I will say that the kind of quality, the kind of grading quality... (laughs) that it has at least on my particular ear has kind of softened to some degree and uh he actually does a song on the uh third season of twin peaks which is excellent and um Hmm. uh, i think it's called sand if i'm not mistaken it's it's uh one of his solo works it's not a pearl jam song uh but uh yeah i actually i've i've um come around quite a bit on on eddie vedder and i i think pearl jam are fine like they're good okay uh, and I'll say, I listened to the original version of the song Last Kiss for the first time while preparing for the segment, uh, and I didn't care for it. I think the Pearl Jam version is way better. Wait, sorry, who, who wrote the original song? Did you, did you say uh, that? His name is Wayne Cochran. It's a very, I guess, sort of 1950s song. I don't know how to describe it. It didn't really s- sound like anything too special, whereas Pearl Jam's version feels very powerful, I guess. Yeah, okay. 
couple other ones for my list. Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. Oh, fuck. I was going to use that one. That was like oh, one of the I'll let you talk about it because you're more familiar <laughs> with it than I am. I, I've, I've only heard it a couple times, but I know that you've mentioned that one a lot. Yeah. I will say I probably like it a little more than the original version of Hurt, even though they, they work upon the same subject material. The way that uh, the song works in the context of Trent Reznor's life versus Johnny Cash's life almost make for two different songs when you contextualize it. I think without the context, it's probably a lot easier to say Johnny Cash's version is better. And I would Mm -hmm. probably lean a little more towards Johnny Cash's version. It's a little more melodic. Uh, It's a little, there's a much more uh, interesting uh, arrangement. Uh, Was there strings in that one? I can't remember. But um, I I think that the the kind of use of that single kind of droning piano note makes it uh, interesting. Uh, the fun fact originally because of the song like the actual cover rendition of the song was so popular I actually thought that it was the reverse that uh, Trent Reznor had had done a co- cover of uh, uh, Johnny Cash when when I didn't know better uh, hmm. uh, because uh, I, I guess that can that's a testament to how he takes the song and appropriates the elements of it so well um, yeah yeah it definitely sounds like a Johnny Cash song when he performs it like I don't think of nine inch nails or any other musician when i hear that song yeah actually it's it's good that you mentioned that because there's a lot of uh covers that he did off of his uh american lps that are mm-hmm. i'm not necessarily say i i prefer his cover of personal jesus by depeche mode to the depeche mode version but that's because like i i, I never was a huge fan of that particular song and i think actually johnny cash makes me like the song more speaking of personal jesus i heard that song for the first time in the show the leftovers a couple i was watching a couple weeks ago and it was the richard cheese version (laughs) and i was surprised like i recognized the voice of uh richard cheese and i was surprised that that was in that was in a tv show yeah i don't know actually now that you mentioned it is kind of surprising because uh uh, I, I think that uh, Richard Cheese has had some success with the... I'm not sure. Would you consider it a cover or a parody? I mean, would it be covered under cover? It is a cover, yeah, but it, he does feel like a parody musician. Yeah. Like, it's the same lyrics. It's not like he's writing parody lyrics. He's just performing it more for comedy, it seems. But they are genuinely good songs. Yeah. They're good arrangements. Because... I mean, speaking of versions, uh, of, of, like cover versions of songs that are superior to the original, I feel like Richard Cheese, I could probably, uh, in terms of his discography, like a lot of the songs that he's, like the covers and the rearrangements that he's done, for those of you who are not aware, Richard Cheese takes songs and kind of uh, rearranges them into a kind of jazzy, loungy. Lounge. Yeah. He has elements of bossa nova and lounge and exotica and all that stuff, right? <laughs> the, there's actually a version of the song uh, of a song called Die Motherfucker Die I can't remember who it's originally <laughs> by but uh, yeah. Richard Cheese makes it into this kind of like charming old style like 1950s to 1960s bossa nova kind of exotica type track uh, something that uh, Henry Mancini might have written it's, uh, it's delightful he also does a version of Hotline Bling by Drake which I much prefer to the original. He almost makes yeah. it much more of a emotional song. And uh, because of the, the dynamic and pitch range of his voice being much better than the kind of 
monotonous auto-tune of Drake in that particular song, which I think is a highly overrated song, by the way. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I was going to say, speaking of Hotline Bling, there's also a, uh, it was a cover done by Jimmy Fallon in uh, the persona of Bob Dylan, where <laughs> <laughs> he performs that song pretending to be Bob Dylan like it's a Bob Dylan song. And it's ve- like, regardless of, of your opinion on Jimmy Fallon, it's a very funny performance all right and it's genuinely like a good song when he sings it sick i have to look that up just to wrap up the cover song stuff because i oh, have, yeah, we actually uh, have to do the cover songs too <laughs> well yeah but uh, of the the cover songs that i think are better one of the ones that i always forget is a cover song but uh hooked on a feeling oh yeah, Blue yeah sweet yeah, yeah, is the right. famous one the original one is the the writer of the song i think is bj thomas either the writer or the performer it was kind of there's a few names attached to it it sounds like a completely different song in its original form. And I think there were other versions of it that progressed towards what eventually became the Blue Swede version. But I would say that their version is, without a doubt, a superior version, at least in my opinion. And then the last one I had, uh, well, I had two more. Take Me to the River, Talking Heads does a cover of that on their album, More Songs About Building and Food. Uh, the original artist is Al Green. I'm not super yeah. familiar with that version as much as the Talking Heads one, only because I've listened to that Talking Heads album dozens of times. Yeah, that's um, that's probably, you know, everybody has their favorite Talking Heads album. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's personally my favorite, but I'm not sure if it's yeah. necessary. And I necessarily would say it's the best Talking Heads album, but it's personally my yeah. favorite just because I, the, I do really like that one as well. I would I would make an are, argument yeah. for being my favorite. Yeah, it's, and it's then my the favorite. La- the last one that I had, which I always forget is a cover song as well. I, I love rock and roll. Joan Jett, originally by a group called Arrows. I didn't realize, I th- I guess at some point I did know that it wasn't originally a Joan Jett song, but I that's the song that I most associate with Joan Jett. And it's obviously an incredibly famous song. So I think her song is definitely a more famous version. Uh, that's the, you know, the one that's everybody knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. As we briefly alluded to, we what we decided to do was we decided to cover our respective uh, tracks. Yes. And um, just to see how it goes, I was originally gonna cover one of your like songs, like your actual like song, like songs. Yeah. And I still don't know what one you did. I have some guesses though. I should qualify it by saying that I didn't actually sing one of your songs. Yeah. Uh, and I, I kind of wish that I did because I'm starting to practice singing a little more and I originally want I eventually would like to improve my vocal capacity but uh, I decided just because I, I love your album Dead Roaches and I think it's it's yeah. uh, a sleeper hit yeah um, it's you uh, had a lot of praise for Dead Roaches I screenshotted some of your comments because yeah if I ever had like a, a CD release or something that would be a quote that I would put on the back of it uh, yeah, no, I, I I think it's actually brilliant. In my opinion, it was met with a good amount of acclaim on SoundCloud. It's almost like Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band's album, uh, Trout Mask Replica, where it's like you listen to it once and you're like, oh, okay, that's, wow, that's interesting. I've never heard anything quite like that before. And then you revisit it and you revisit it and you revisit it. And it's like, hmm, there's something brilliant in here. Even if it wasn't like intentional, it was like, there's something... Uh, there's like a sense of discord and conflict that happens like within the song that kind of creates the sense of like unease. And then that yeah. kind of gives way to some of the more more structured composition. I think it's like that itself is what I really dig about it. And I've been thinking about it more and more and more. 
And uh, mm-hmm. I think in, in some ways it's inspired me to try something with a similar compositional style, at least in a very kind of abstract sense, something that kind of uses uh, uh, discord and unease and that uh, the contrast between, you know, sharper, what do you call it, atonal t- style of composition. Mm-hmm. And that and it kind of like gives way to um, a little more structure and a little more simplicity, I guess you could say. But and, uh, when, when we discuss... Uh, like when um, the album that I'm going to recommend is somehow cursorily related to what I'm talking about right now. Uh, so I don't want to spoil that, but uh, I'll just yeah. say that, yeah, I dig it. I decided to do a song from that album. I'm not sure if you want to listen to that right now. I kind of spoiled it, but um, yeah, I, I, my guess is this. I have two guesses of what song you did. Uh, the one I think is more likely is the this, this song, the dead roaches off of the dead roaches album. Yeah. That's the uh, one. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, and that was entirely based on the number of plays that it recently had in the SoundCloud stats. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A yeah, couple so, days ago, I would have guessed you were doing "Swarming Dead Flies" because that one had the most plays. Uh, is that the first song in the album? That is the first song. Yeah. I I found so I I wasn't going to cover that one because it would be like part of that song quotes elevator chapter one. And I thought it would be yeah. kind of too self-referential in order to cover a song <laughs> that's that what... kind of quotes uh, my composition. So, so I to, to... to to take it an extra layer further. So the, the song swarming dead flies off of my album, the dead roaches is actually a remake of two other songs from a previous album that I made called pseudo classics disc one, <laughs> where the first section of that song was called elevator elevating, which was essentially a ripoff of your song elevator chapter one. So it's like an extra layer of covering on covers. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like this is some good lore right happening right now because, um, yeah. Uh, and also, if you're not aware, a remake of Elevator Chapter One is the intro of our podcast. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Uh, yeah. So, so it has like existed throughout the ages. It has become a standard in 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 our own kind of existing canon. But uh, anyway, yeah. So the song that I what decided to do was uh, Dead Roaches. Um, since I've given yeah. it away, did you want to just play that one right now? Or yeah. that was pretty good 
I, I'll I'll be curious to listen to it uh, again because uh, I I wish I'd turn my volume up a bit, but I didn't want to fuck with any anything. But I did really like that because in the original version, maybe in the edit we can include like ten seconds of the original of each of these songs uh, when we're comparing them. Mm-hmm. But my version is very repetitive. It's essentially a four bar pattern repeating the whole time with a piano solo that isn't really in any particular key going on over top of it. I like how you used the main melody elements in this, but made it a more complex and interesting arrangement to it. Yeah. There's a bit of guitar wankery in it, but uh Yeah, yeah. And it was and more of like a, a swing tempo to it at parts. Yeah. The drums. So what I had originally done was that what I wanted to do is that yours is in more of like a straight eighths type uh yeah. drum pattern. What I had done was that I'd alternated it between uh like shuffle and a straight eighths pattern and it just sounded kind of weird and I just decided to make it a straight up jazz song, which is kind mm-hmm. of my original I wanted to take the pseudo jazz and kind of like jazzify it to make if that makes any sense. Um and with this particular composition, when I was trying to transcribe the chords, I noticed that it was in a it was a modal progression. Like it was a uh uh, I think it was C minor, E flat, major seven to just an, just an F triad. I like that because it's in a uh, C Dorian. Uh, and mm-hmm. so this, uh, this, this was good for two reasons, right? I could just, um, instead of having to play over changes, uh, I could just, just solo in C Dorian without having to worry about doing any modulations or changing arpeggios or anything like that. I could just wank around in C Dorian. And actually, it was interesting because I've never done really like a modal jazz kind of composition before and uh, I wish I had incorporated a little more elements of modal jazz but uh, what I tried to do was um, play around with interesting voicings in the harmony so when the piano is playing I tried to voice the chords all kinds of different ways like doing chordal voicings and all that and doing like upper suspensions and that kind of thing what what uh, what I found is that the composition works really well as that kind of like modal jazz composition now, what I was going to do <laughs> is because I have absolutely no knowledge of the bass whatsoever. I used a MIDI bass. I was actually thinking of asking you for your help, but then it would have spoiled the Yeah, the it would have defeated the, the purpose. So what I tried to do is I tried to make a walking bass line that kind of used the mm. chord tones. I didn't want to alter the composition too much because uh, it had a driving kind of feel to it. The original composition did that, uh, and it had that sense of like, plotting forward the thing that actually took me a long time was to program the the drums and stuff like that because just doing like a swing pattern over and over again like doing a shuffle uh just made it kind of like really boring after a little while what i did was when i recorded the guitar i found that it was like way off of time so i found Hmm. so i just like recorded elements of the solo uh, and if I liked the first few minutes, I would edit out everything else, and then I would add things to it. And if I didn't like it, I would uh, I would just edit out the parts that I didn't like. Uh, yeah. And then I kind of made this kind of like Frankenstein's monster of a solo. Uh, mm. And it was fun because it gave me an opportunity to like practice my jazz soloing. But uh, yeah, I, I still like the original more because it has more of a distinct quality to it. And I love the timbre of that synth. Which synth? Uh, the synth that plays the main melody. Or I'm not sure if it's a synth or it's or uh, it would be another. I instrument. will tell you now. That is a real instrument. That is a, a melodian. Yeah. Yeah. The da 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 da. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. my problem with that, uh, because I I mentioned to you previously, but I was uh, 
it's been a side project where I'm trying to re-record elements of that album that I wasn't happy with to make what I would consider a definitive version of it. Specifically, re-recording all the bass because I wasn't happy with how the bass went. And then some of the drums, in, or mo all the drums in the original version were actual drum recordings. But because I don't know how to play drums for shit, they were kind of a bit rough in my opinion. So replacing those with a similar, probably MIDI counterpart. And then specifically in the Dead Roaches song, the Melodian part, when you isolate that audio, I can hear the backing music that was coming out of my headphones while I was recording it. Oh, uh, so I can like hear a shitty drum beat with the uh, the piano going on in that recording. So I wanted to replace that specifically because when I try and remix it, I can't really do it in a way that I like. One thing I was thinking of was replacing that instrument with um, more of a brass section playing that line. Yeah, I can uh, probably accommodate that. I mean, I don't have a yeah, because I know you you've got the Hollywood brass or the yeah. I think it's called Hollywood brass. Yeah, yeah, some sort of horn section there. But that will be an ongoing project yeah um i'm probably gonna do that once i get my usb jack uh i'll, I'll try to do yeah. it like just well, once by inputting you, uh, notes but sorry yeah. go ahead. sorry once, once you saying. solder the uh the usb yeah usbb uh, i hope that i hope that solves the problem because I, I i i'm just like i've had it with fucking inputting midi notes like manually i dig your cover and uh i thought that the little quote at the end for the uh at uh, the vhs experience was uh was awesome uh and i thought that wait so you listened to mine the, the cover yeah low light oh I, I thought we were gonna listen to it at the same time we did did we did, did we not oh you listened to mine while i was listening to yours yeah i thought that's what we were gonna do oh i thought we were listening to, we were both listening to dead roads then we we're both gonna listen to the other one no no, no. i i uh i i thought we were gonna like in order to save time we were gonna live uh, listen to each other's composition oh okay uh that probably makes more sense
basically, I uh, I wasn't sure uh, what song I was originally going to do of yours. I, at a time, I thought I would try the VHS Experience one, but that one seemed more... It seemed more the premise of it was based around the aesthetics of the sound, the VHS yeah. experience, if you will. Yeah, and there's um, a lot of detuned synths in that one, too. Yeah, so I didn't... Uh, and going for an aesthetic or specific sound isn't really uh, where my strengths are. So I didn't want to do something like that and not do it the full justice. Uh, so I decided to go to try to do the low light song in my own style. So I, I listened to it and I tried to just essentially play the main melody of those uh, of the electric piano chords on bass. And what I came up with was a a bass line that essentially fit in the key of C pretty well. I couldn't tell you what the actual chords are of the song or what key they fit into. So I figured that I would just build around that main line. And I, I added some synths and some some other instruments and stuff. Uh, and then that, that leading synth. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second uh, section, uh, I really like the song because the first section is, is a pattern of five bars and then it goes to a pattern of three bars. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to try and incorporate an element of the VHS experience in there. And I thought about having that main melody going on during the the three bar pattern, because then it would become off sync by a bar every time, but I couldn't do it in a way that I liked. Mm. So I decided to add that as the third section, because uh, in the original, it goes back to that main chord progression, but with some new elements and stuff. But I didn't really have any ideas to mix up the elements anymore so i decided to to do that little vhs experience at the end I which was a, yeah <laughs> it was a it. pain in the ass to record the because uh, i recorded first i interpreted the line on a midi instrument and then i changed the key uh i think i just moved it up a tone so that cause i think the main chord of the first bar was a flat minor so i made it a minor just so it would be in a relatively similar key as it was before and then the next bar i believe is c minor and that three bar pattern the second section of the song sort of goes from a c to a c minor so it kind of fit into the same family of chords that we'd already done but when i tried to so i when i had the midi file i then brought that into the the program muse score and was able to determine the tablature form of that and then I had to record it on both guitar and bass, but I essentially had to record each bar as a standalone thing because there was no way I could learn that whole line uh, it, and perform it in a single go to perfection, at least in the time constraint that I had. Yeah, I. so I have to ask, um, would you be able to provide me with a a rendition of that synth? Like, can you export it? Because I love that lead synth so much. Of the... Uh, uh, of the the main section the first section yeah i think you can export or things in logic yeah, yeah. as like a uh it wouldn't be a component it would be i think logic has a proprietary file type for for channel strip settings or for i'm not sure what synth is it it's like the es2 uh, or I, EX. um it, if you go into logic i think the synth is called it's either called shit is that oh, they called something like electric buzz or elastic lead or something like that it's one oh. of those ones it starts with an e it's in the lead synth section cool i will definitely check that out because uh yeah. i like the sound of the synths and, and the kind of uh there's more like kind of upper harmonics to it it's a little more kind of buzzy i like that yeah uh, and and with a lot of the lead synths uh in logic 
if you hold down one note, which is what, what I like to do and what I did in this song, you hold down one note and then you're playing the other notes over top of that. And then when you stop playing those other notes, it goes back to the main one. It's the, the notes don't um, create chords. It's, it's just sort of a different note is so taking like over. Monophonic so if I What's that? Like a monophonic synth? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you're playing uh, a single note, if you always have that one to fall back on, then you can sort of just twiddle around on top of that and then go back to the main thing at the end. Oh, yeah. So it creates like a drone type thing where you have that kind of yeah. central note and then you play around it and then it always kind of deviates back to it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Like I, I did, uh, I had that main droning note and then I did like a sort of a few other things over top of that. And then I recorded over that again and did some higher twiddly things as the sort of lead into the next bar kind of thing. Sick. I yeah, was I... mostly happy with how that turned out. I liked that it sounded almost nothing like what low light is uh, <laughs> i liked that i took essentially just the main melody of the two sections as well as parts from vhs experience and then just i i tried for the most part like i would listen to them to compare them to make sure that i'm still making the same song uh but for the most part i just wanted to take the main melody and then just take it in a completely different style than uh what you had already done successfully yeah um so for me i mean as far as l l a learning experience goes like it kind of uh i w i wasn't totally blown away by the production and if i if i had more time i literally did the whole thing yesterday uh because yeah. this whole week that for me has been i just felt like totally creatively deprived but um i like what i was able to achieve solo wise in guitar like i only had to do a few edits as in like editing one part and having to go back and track a new solo so i i'm kind of proud of that i i don't love how wanky it sounds i i chose to keep the tempo of the original track and what i was gonna do mm originally i was gonna take one of your tracks and kind of make them into more of like a, a cool jazz type thing uh by moving it d uh, down tempo because i'm not a jazz soloist by any stretch of the imagination uh it's still something that i'm learning about and when i whenever i do it in order to successfully solo over changes i usually keep my backing track at a lower tempo because at least with this one i could just uh i could just uh solo around in uh, C Dorian without having to worry about changes. But mm -hmm. um, I, I still feel as though the the kind of harmonic rhythm that you get with the dun 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 like the the uh, yeah. like the dotted quarter note uh, harmony or, or melody rather or rhythm. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I just like go through all the elements of music until I get the right one. Um, yeah. The harmonic rhythm of that, you still had to like respect that a little bit. Otherwise it just sounds like you're soloing over nothing. And uh, that's why I kind of wanted to like have the solo work around that harmonic rhythm. What I would have would have done is I would have probably put it a little more a little bit more research into doing walking bass lines, and mm. uh, uh, just probably would have redone the bass altogether. And uh, I don't love the production, but uh, uh, I think the, at least the drums sound okay. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I'll definitely. We we should do this again because uh, this mm -hmm. was cool. It was definitely a cool experience. I like the idea of like maybe the next one that we do, whether it's in the next episode or not, or down the line, revisiting of our of our own songs, some of our earliest songs to recreate. Yeah, I think we should do both. Honestly, like we should continue to cover each other's songs, mm -hmm, like absolutely. in a later episode, and then we should also uh, try that because uh, I think both of those would be an interesting kind of experiment. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I then also. Saying also cover uh the ever elusive billy may's experience yeah 
Oh man, I I don't think I've listened to those songs except for Here Comes the Shire Folk in very long time. Uh, I remember listening to them somewhat recently because I think they're on your Bandcamp account. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. they are actually. I think I think they're buried in a different album of uh, I think it's my Lost Tracks and Rarities collection. Yeah, every now and then I go back to your Bandcamp just to revisit memories of of. Uh, 2000 anytime between 2012 to 2016 yeah when, uh, when uh we were uh younger and uh you know yeah. more naive i think uh it might be on that lost tracks and rarities collection i have but i did a cover of pink floyd's bike uh and it is it's rough it's it's very rough i <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's a decent performance at well it's decent for 2011 when it was recorded and the f- fact that it was recorded using the built-in microphone on an iMac but having said that you can definitely hear those aspects of it that it was clearly like you like I played the the main vocal line uh, on a keyboard uh, like an actual piano keyboard which is playing from the keyboard's built-in speakers through the iMac built-in microphone yeah. So you can imagine right there the uh, quality of that. Also, I would say that this has reminded me that I have to try to employ your bass playing skills a little more because uh, okay. I find that the uh, the VSTs that are offered with uh, Logic for very simple and rudimentary compositions, they, they can, they're passable, especially if they exists in a background capacity but for something that where the bass is a little more upfront where the uh, the line is a little more audible then mm. uh the that's something where i would actually prefer to have an actual bass guitar uh yeah. and uh, i would I, i'll employ your skills because you are skilled and i own a bass yeah and a, an actual acoustic bass or uh well a bass bass guitar rather not a it's a fender bass like an actual fender i'm i'm offended by that No, right. nothing. No, I, I I heard the joke. It's going into the bin. Forget it. <laughs> into the trash it goes. It's getting edited out. Yeah. Don't edit it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, just on a final note of our covers, I was going to say, I would absolutely listen to a whole album of you reimagining the Dead Roaches uh, discography. So I, I would say that I would love to try. The only thing about it is that the Dead Roaches is kind of tricky because there's a lot of kind of strange and random discordant harmony. And I was actually yeah. originally like looking at some of the other cuts on the album and wondering like how I should, uh, if I should uh, try in one of those. And mm-hmm. uh, I think maybe I should, but they would take a lot more time to transcribe. I mean, the- well, I do have the MIDI files of the original. Oh, okay. Well, in that and, case, uh, that I, when I, when I was asking you about the, uh, the dead roaches song for the brass section i uploaded the file that i uploaded has the full album compiled into a single project file so you'd have all the midi files in there i'll probably dissect some of those tracks more because as i listen to this album more and more i i just grow to adore it more and more yeah and i i know that uh effusive praise is probably not good but uh on the other hand, I don't know. I just, I just really enjoy it. And I think there's a lot of interesting ideas in here. And for you, yeah. I would say that I would love to hear more of something in the style of pseudo jazz. 
And uh, once once you uh, have uh, thought of once you're like kind of thinking outside of the range of what you're currently doing with the singer songwriter stuff, which I also dig, uh, yeah. I would love to hear more. You continue to develop that style because it's. I mean, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, is it is something that you thought up and you have your own kind of the pseudo jazz. You mean? Yeah, pseudo jazz is something yeah. that you thought up and the the kind of creative decisions that you made in in arriving at the conclusion that it's something that needs to be experimented with uh, mm-hmm. are yours and yours alone. And I can only kind of try to understand it. But uh, <laughs> I'm making it sound a lot more profound than it actually is. I'm, I'm sure it's <laughs> not like that profound. But uh, yeah. Basically, the core idea behind pseudo jazz is based around the limited jazz theory I knew at the time and using those elements to my advantage to make something. Yeah. And, and I think that that could be bolstered quite a bit by, I mean, if you continue to develop in that style uh, and yeah. like do more stuff, because like, I mean, nobody is, uh, the thing is that it's a distinct idea, which, which makes mm-hmm. it something that, that if you develop it, um, not only will it be something that is good just by virtue of the fact that it's a distinct idea, it'll just be good by virtue of the fact that you've kind of honed that craft and you've developed that idea more. Uh, but yeah. uh, if, if that makes any sense whatsoever. But, no, uh, yeah, for sure. Dead Roaches was the second pseudo jazz album I did. The first one being pseudo classics disc one. Yeah. Which featured. I think you gave me that one on CD, right? Or was that the. Blue I did one? have a CD release of that one. Yeah, I did. That one, I think, might have even been made in GarageBand. And it. Uh, using that same keyboard that I used to record my cover of Bike. Uh, so it wasn't a great keyboard. It had no velocity detection. So all the notes on that album are played at the same dynamic. Yeah. Velocity um, detection. I mean, be careful what you wish for because my, my keyboard is velocity sensitive i mean if you hit a note like too soft it won't detect it at all if you hit it too hard mm. it'll be the velocity of 127 out of 127 so yeah fuck it's like yeah i definitely sensitive. play around with it a lot more now that i have one that has that detection but uh it gives it some variety but that original album was the very playing it safe in terms of what pseudo jazz is and even the last song on the album is not all that jazzy but that's the beauty of pseudo jazz it yeah. has the title yeah <laughs> Yeah. Then Dead Roaches was supposed to be more of that uneasy feeling. Yeah. Uh, to sound as if it was a, a song being performed live by a collection of insects. Yeah. The unsettling feeling of that is associated with insects. And uh, I think I, I have been thinking about creating a new pseudo jazz album. And with my recent love of all things chaos uh, and chaotic jazz in particular, I feel like that would probably be the logical next step for it. Well, I'd love um, to feature on it in some capacity if you, if you would want absolutely me to. feature on it. Cool. You and your your Joe Pass guitar are the the essential piece of the puzzle. Nice. I've uh, was improvising earlier today on my keyboard, and I I actually was started working on an old kind of jazz esque composition. It's not jazz because it's not you know it doesn't follow that kind of rhythm. It's almost more of like a classical piece, like a you know twentieth century kind of impressionistic composition, something more like Camille Saint Saens or something like that. But it's uh, it uses a lot of the same kind of extended harmony and kind of strange, unexpected cadences and things like that that uh, you would find in jazz. And uh, yeah, so I think I'm going to work on that a little more. But uh, I originally composed it in order to work on, like, I have a lot of compositions that I use just to learn about composing. 
and let that mm. to like experiment with stuff because if it works then you add it to the composition and then you practice it and then you continue to develop those ideas so yeah uh that this is one of them it's like a uh, a test composition it's like a guinea pig composition almost so did we want to proceed to the next segment joe pass or joe smash joe pass or joe smash did you want to talk about yours first i i don't really have a, a lot to say <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't have a ton to say about mine. So uh, the song that I listened to, it was the number one trending video on YouTube at the time of planning the podcast. The song is called Trolls uh, with a Z by 6 9 and Nicki Minaj. I specifically wanted to talk about this song because we have talked about 6 9 in the past and we're both not overly thrilled with his song because it was of the top 10 it may have been number one at a time when it had come out but i don't think either one of us was particularly impressed by it because we didn't really know his music i listened to the song i'll say that musically i don't know if it was a sample or just a random background music that they made i wasn't overly impressed by it but i thought that six nine I, i can see the appeal of his from his performance on this one i thought his performance was much better in this one and it was a video it was a music video and Nicki Minaj I mean she was you know in her clothing in that video which was nice (laughs) I don't overly talk about that but it's a and I thought her performance was also she is indeed thick (laughs) her performance was good too Uh, I don't really know a ton of Nicki Minaj's music but I think that she uh, is good at delivering rap lyrics and i thought this was a good performance from both of them on this i specifically wanted to talk about six nine because i this was the first time i heard him perform where i thought that he actually does have the the talent that he has or that that his success has got him when i saw the title trolls i thought it somehow had to do with the recent trolls film that released Mm -hmm. to critical acclaim apparently and it very much was not there was there's some language where i'm like this is definitely between the language and you know the uh the outfits that Nicki minaj was wearing like this definitely isn't about the kids movie trolls i wouldn't give the song a joe pass no no i i take it i wouldn't give the song a joe smash it, it, it isn't really my song so for that reason it has to be a joe pass but i will say that that's because i'm not a fan of of this style of music in general i do think it was very well performed lyrically i didn't have any problems with it maybe i uh if i need to maintain my throne of the trap king i can read out some lyrics but i don't know if they were anything too special but i thought their performances were good but it's a joe pass for me all right uh i'm gonna check that one out just because you said it was kind of i want to see what differentiates it in quality from the previous track that we had both listened to so the one that i had selected for this one particular one was one that has been on the billboard top 100 for a little while i'm not sure if it recently just re- reached its peak at number one but it had been hovering in the number four to number five slot for a little while i listened to it i actually listened to it back probably in in may when we were recording our first podcast and it did not have much of an impression on me and upon revisiting the song i realized why it's weird in this particular case at the beginning of the song i thought it was kind of interesting the use of the sample it sounds like a kind of arpeggiated guitar riff playing a very kind of you know basic kind of like minor one four five one or something like that or not probably not even but the song itself in terms of like lyrical content has nothing to do with the emotional uh, quality that the instrumental sets up and it's uh, almost more of a, a braggadocious and congratulatory piece 
there's there's a weird kind of discongruity between the lyrical content and the rapping which seems to be very optimistic it's not very self-reflective it's not like something say Kanye West would write uh, where it was like there are elements of a of a narcissism and self-congratulatory writing in it but the instrumental um, I'm trying to think of the name of the composition or the, of the song so there's a song that he did oh the song is called Runaway this is a song that I listened to recently and it actually originally came out as part of his album My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy it was interesting because it's a very somber and very melancholic sample the, the thing of that is that I'm not a huge fan of the song, but at least the um, lyrical content reflects the mood and the and the style of the uh, sample that they're using in order to bolster the composition. And uh, in this case, it just uh, it doesn't work. There's a to there's total discongruity between the sample and the and the lyrical content, and it's it's kind of puts you out of the experience because you expect something a little more hard hitting with a track like this that's more braggadocious and a song where he literally you know he is the rock star the titular rock star in question so uh, it's a joe pass for me mostly because mm -hmm. it's just not in any way because of any deficiency in the production or in the level of virtuosity but just in the odd quality of it the fact that the sample doesn't in any way serve the purposes of the song at large and also that i could barely remember it after listening to it initially in our in our probing of the billboard top 100 back in may that's all i have to say about that one well a couple of joe passes that doesn't really amount to much yeah well it's a testament to just how rare it is when you get a good pop song yeah i mean it's rare yeah. it's it's good it's it's refreshing but it is rare yeah i mean something has to be number one that doesn't yeah. mean there's always going to be the best song ever written yeah shit floats <laughs> i think uh, it's just more it depends on your water, diet right oh yeah well fair enough um yeah, yeah so uh did you want to do album uh, your album recommendation first or did you want me to do um mine? i'll do an album recommendation yeah go for it at first, I wanted to recommend an album that had cover songs on it to fit in with the recurring theme. But no albums really suck out as albums that I would want to recommend too, too much, specifically because of that reason. So I'm going to recommend, in my research I'm, I'm, uh, that I'm doing right now, I'm going to do a cheat recommendation by recommending Sid Barrett's album, Sid Barrett, which is a double album that contains both of his albums because <laughs> okay. i couldn't choose between his two albums the madcap laughs and barrett ow did you hear um, a weird sound just now yeah i heard a, okay. i heard a kind of like thump and then ow <laughs> my uh, audio mixer fell on my knee so did i listen to so uh, i've definitely not listened to that album is it technically a compilation album it's me cheating because i didn't want to recommend only madcap laughs or only barrett it's technically just the U.S. release of both albums compiled into a double album, just of two separate albums. Okay. So I'm 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 really recommending two albums because I didn't want to choose. But if you listen to either of those albums, then you're familiar with it. So I don't know how familiar you are with Sid Barrett's solo works. I know you've you're somewhat aware of it, probably through my recommendations over the years. Yeah, I remember you used to sing those songs all the time in university. <laughs> yeah. I described the Madcap Laughs as the soundtrack to my mental breakdown. These albums are very 
I would almost say that they're they're almost like folk tracks. When I think of Sid Barrett in his Pink Floyd days, obviously their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, was very psychedelic and very, I, I don't know, it was it's very its own thing, even compared to later Pink Floyd albums. Like the next couple Pink Floyd albums after that one continued a similar trajectory as it began to evolve more into the era of like Dark Side of the Moon. Piper at the Gates uh, Aven- of Dawn, certified banger, by the way. All the way yeah, through. It, that, that's a, a really great album. Love but I would album. say the albums Madcap Laughs and Barrett are both almost more folky in nature. They definitely have some of the psychedelic elements that he's known for and weird sort of musical techniques and guitar stuff that he does. But they're very like singer-songwritery type songs. The interesting thing about the albums were actually definitely the the first album, Madcap Laughs, was produced by Roger Waters and David Gilmour from Pink Floyd, obviously. What I knew about the history of Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett having his own kind of drug-induced breakdown and then leaving the band it wasn't until years later that i really realized that he was very much connected with the original members of pink floyd while making his solo albums and then the the album barrett i believe david gilmore and richard wright both perform on the album uh, richard wright being the keyboard player from pink floyd and i think even some of them like there's tracks where david gilmore is playing bass on them or uh, he may have even been doing uh, the drums on some of them. And he maybe even did some guitar stuff. But uh, it's interesting that because I, when I listened to those albums in high school and when we were at university, I wasn't really aware of any of that stuff. I just knew I really dug the music. So the albums are very, at the core of each album, it boils down to Sid Barrett singing a very nonsensical lyrical collage of images on a on electric guitar or acoustic guitar depending and then there's compositions built around those usually with some weird psychedelic tones of the guitar doing weird solos or something or something that's almost a little more straightforward but with a weird twist to it in a way some of the tracks are almost very unfinished or unpolished in a way some of them are almost he he just did a single take of the song and then pretty much went with it and there and even in expanded versions of the albums there are the alternate takes of some of the songs or what essentially would become the final version of the song where you can hear a producer in the background saying song one take one kind of thing like a slate type thing yeah and a lot of the songs are he, he's very much an inspiration to me and in, uh when i did pseudo jazz of writing a song that isn't necessarily in any particular key or an inspiration with my my own fake mustaches album of having completely ridiculous songs that are at at, a, at their core still very good songs so off of the album madcap laugh some of the the highlight songs is a song called here i go which i've done a, a cover of that david gilmore also does a cover of that it's out there somewhere but uh, he did it for like a, a radio performance and he does a really cool cover of that song David Gilmore actually does a lot of covers of Sid Barrett songs, mostly in live performances, which would have been a good way to connect it to the cover song thing because he covered so many songs. On the album Barrett, there's a song called Dominoes, which is one of my favorite Sid Barrett songs. David Gilmore does a live version of that where he does it acoustic and he has a, a double bass player playing it with him. And that's probably my favorite version of the song that exists. There is a song on Madcap Laughs called Octopus, which is probably my favorite of Sid Barrett's songs, but I say that about a lot of his songs. That one is probably the most lyrically interesting and strange and imagery-inducing songs. The title 
Madcap Laughs comes from uh, a lyric in that song. I could listen to any of these, either of these albums. He, uh, These were his two major albums. He had a couple other albums that were more like, uh, you know, unreleased studio sessions. He had an album called Opal, which was mainly alternate takes of existing songs um, with one or two new songs to that album. And then best of albums that pretty much had the same stuff or one or two unreleased tracks. But yeah, I, I can't recommend these albums enough. They're probably of my favorite albums of all time. And Sid Barrett is one of my favorite musicians of all time. That's excellent. So I have a, a strange relationship with folk. Uh, there are, I kind of have a, not a lot of patience for it, but but there are a lot of folk albums uh, that I'm sure I've alluded to in the past, at least maybe not necessarily on record on the podcast, that have uh, surprised me in the uh, in how creative they, they are with such limited instrumentation or arrangement or anything like that. Neil Young, you know, after the Gold Rush and the Richard Holly album, more so for its arrangements and everything like that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are many others. The list goes on. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely give it a uh, try. Uh, when I, I say folk, I feel like I may misuse the term folk. I more mean it if if you listen to my Fake Mustaches album, you'll see where a lot of my inspiration came from in terms of the playfulness of the songs, I guess. The sort of singer-songwritery aspect of it, but not really want to pin it down into anything. Okay. Does that make sense? Well, I, I like Sid, Sid Barrett. I think he was brilliant. Uh, so I definitely yeah. give that a go. I, I can't remember if I ever listened to Madcap Laughs. Uh, I, for some reason, I think I gave it a go. I might not have listened to the whole thing all the way through. It might have been selected songs. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if there was a YouTube edit of the entire album out at the time uh, that you had first recommended it to me. So I might have just listened to tracks from the album. But uh, I'll definitely listen to the whole album full the way uh, all the way through. I'm always listening to, or I'm always looking to listen to stuff that's kind of a little outside what I would usually listen to. In fact, that's what I would say. Um, I don't have anything, any kind of prejudices against folk. Uh, it's more more so that it's just not really within the realm of what I typically listen to. And I, and I have to concede that there's a lot of good folk, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of interesting and challenging and artistic folk out there. So for sure, I will check that out. All right. So in the same way as, as you were trying to recommend several albums at once, uh, in a, in a sort of roundabout way, I'm recommending multiple albums because the album that I wanted to recommend to you is an album called The Color of Spring by Talk Talk. Talk Talk were a synth pop band way back in the uh, 1980s. And they were probably most known for the song It's My Life, which uh, uh, apropos our uh, discussion about cover songs was probably overshadowed by the cover by Gwen Stefani. I think more people probably know the cover and it's probably played a lot more on radio than the original song. That's not to say that the the song wasn't uh, commercially successful. A lot of uh, uh, Talk Talk's early work, as well as this album, were very commercially successful. Color of Spring is a bit different than Talk Talk's earlier output uh, in that it is a, I don't know how to describe it. It's a, it is kind of like a new wave album, but um, the reason that I love it so much is because this album, as well as the two final albums that uh, Talk Talk released, used such an interesting style of production and editing. And I've probably alluded to this in the past in discussions with you. What they did was when they when they had recorded songs, 
in order to add extra layers and textures to the songs, they would have musicians improvise around the song. And then what they would do is they would take the best elements of that improvisation and then edit them into the, the final recording. Hmm. That's what they did on this album. On the next two albums, which I could probably write like books about, which are Spirit of Eden and Laughingstock, which are the last hmm. two albums. I think one of them was released in 89 and the other was 91, if I'm not mistaken. They were both released, I think, in the early 90s. On those albums in particular, the lead singer and songwriter Mark Hollis and the producer Tim Free Screen, what they did was they kind of perfected this style of making these like longer form compositions. I mean, there were still songs, there were still vocals. And then in some cases, there was still a structure, you know, alternating between different sections. But uh, there was a lot more improvisation and a lot more kind of free flowing, you know, ideas like they would they would employ quite a few different musicians for this for their their projects, they would use like you know, uh, s smaller string ensembles, like a quartet. They would have uh, trumpet players and uh, they would use a lot of like found sounds as well. In fact, a lot of the songs are just, they use a lot of silence. There will be a lot of space between when one section of playing ends and then there will be almost like just a found sound recording or a set of found sound recordings that are layered in order to like transition you to a new section and they're used a lot for like establishing a totally separate mood but what's interesting is that mark hollis who is the lead singer and songwriter was actually influenced a lot by in addition to a lot of like early impressionistic classical composers he was influenced by miles davis who famously wanted to use the recording studio as an instrument when recording the albums uh, bitches brew and in a silent way yeah, so mm. Bitches Brew and In a Silent Way are his like early jazz fusion albums. And uh, you can see some uses of the of interesting editing and looping on those albums that uh, in addition to the kind of loose improv improvisational style that was used on those albums, using blank space, using silence in order to augment the composition, and also using editing and looping and uh, all that other stuff. Uh, was a way of kind of using the recording studio as a tool for arrangement and composition in a way. And uh, in this particular case, it's not used as much on The Color of Spring. The songs are a lot more cohesive and, well, song-like. They follow that kind of verse-chorus-verse type structure, but uh, with added textures all over the place. The opening song, I think it's called Happiness is Easy. I think that's the opening song. You, you can tell it has a lot of like quintessential 80s sounds. There's that kind of like pitch stretched drums and uh, there's a lot of interesting percussive elements added over it. The best song in my opinion is a song called Life's What You Make It. If for no other reason than it has this beautiful guitar hook that has this towering reverby quality to it and it's just excellent. One of my MIA professors actually recently produced a cover of that song which was more um, a recreation of the song. And he did a fantastic job. The guitar actually sounds exactly identical to the original uh, composition. Yeah, so I'm just gonna recommend this album. If you do like this album and it, and it, uh, and you are struck by the creativity of it, then I would love for you to listen to uh, Spirit of Eden and Laughingstock because those albums, like, like they are some of my favorite albums of all time. And, I, and uh, I've used, I've been meaning to use that style of editing of an album of using improvisation and then editing the impactful moments within that uh, in that improvised section into a larger composition for a little while. I haven't really done it. 
uh, but uh, it's you know something that I've always been meaning to try. I guess you can say I did do that on the cover uh, of your song. Uh, I did that with the solo, but uh, in this, it's actually more transparent and it's actually less of a means of editing something to make it look like it was a planned composition. It's almost like Dadaist art or like a collage almost. There's like separate textures and uh, elements that just kind of come up out of the blue and it adds to the atmosphere. It makes it kind of really distinct. And uh, yeah, so the album's called Color of Spring by Talk Talk. I'll definitely listen to that. It's good shit. It's the good shit, man. Yeah. Did you want to do a brief recap of our thoughts of last week recommendations? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I, I I'll just say I listened to the Jerry Mulligan Nightlights album uh, a handful of times. Uh, I listened to it. I listened to it early in the week last week and didn't really think twice about it. Like I had it on in the background and kind of wasn't giving it really a a do listen. I listened to it when I was working at the Garden on Thursday, and that was kind of a a slower day that day. So I was able to just focus a little more on the music, mm-hmm. and I really dug it. It's very like you said, it's not the chaotic jazz that I usually crave, but it was a nice, easy listening, smooth experience. Yeah, yeah. I really like it. There's a lot of reasons I really dig it. I think it actually serves its purpose very well as something that you can just put on and not really pay attention to. Yeah. It's, it's provides really good ambience. In fact, I usually put it on in the evening if I'm having dinner, just kind of like sit, sit at my table and kind of look at the window. It's, you know, real, real nice, real, real deep. So I, I like that album. I, I digged uh, Afro and uh, I didn't know really that it was so, uh, it had taken so many inspirations from Cuban music and other styles as well mm-hmm. uh, before listening to it. But what I especially liked about it is that I had always found it difficult to find uh uh, big band music that had that kind of noisy and a little more abrasive quality to it than a lot of like early big band music like uh duke ellington and stuff like that like a lot of yeah. it is uh who's the other uh, glenn something rather uh, glenn miller oh yeah glenn so, miller. so it's not yeah, yeah. like uh you know uh, a lot of like more well-known big band type composition yeah and what i actually didn't know going into it is that uh, i'm not sure if you mentioned it or that and then it just passed from my mind i didn't even know that it was a big band uh, album going into mm. it and that the um it was actually arranged for a larger ensemble i thought it might have been just for like a a quartet or something like that but right. uh it reminded me a lot of uh something that i had been looking for after listening to the cowboy bebop soundtrack which is a soundtrack for a classic anime show called cowboy bebop obviously uh and it's by That's a lucky coincidence that the the titles are the same yeah who would have thought <laughs> who knew right uh, they should have it's almost like they planned it but there's no way oh it, it's it's the most you know it's the strangest of coincidences it's Uncanny. almost like they wrote the music it's for not the TV canny show. in the slightest yeah who who would have known who would have known but uh yeah so the seatbelts are a japanese uh ensemble i'm not formally recommending it to you but i am informally recommending that you listen to the seatbelts uh cowboy bebop ost even if you haven't necessarily seen the show like a lot of the music just functions as a, a separate entity in and of itself which is something that doesn't work with a lot of soundtracks a lot of soundtracks kind of exist for the sole purpose of uh, uh, augmenting the on-screen material but this is one case where even if you don't watch the show i recommend listening to it there's a lot of really good big band music and, and uh, of plenty of other styles as well like not just big band music and jazz 
But uh, that's that's what it kind of reminded me of. And I had been looking mm. for something similar a lot uh, recently. And I feel as though in my searches, the, the one thing that comes up when you usually search like big band is some of the older big band from like the the late 40s and early 50s. And this one, it kind of like stands apart from that. It's a little more aggressive. It's a little more fast in, in some cases. And it's uh, a little more, you know, it has a little more abrasion to it. And I love the mm-hmm. Cuban influence as well in, in the yeah. few tracks that do have Cuban influence. Mm-hmm. Shall we proceed to the SoundCloud recommendations? Yeah. SoundCloud uh, shoutouts. Yeah, SoundCloud shoutouts. So the musician that I wanted to shout out is named... Joel Henry Little. Link in the description. Link in the description. So I was going to recommend a specific track from this guy's SoundCloud, but it's not up there anymore. So the track I was going to recommend was a cover that he did of David Bowie's song, Loving the Alien. Yeah, I Um, I still have that, uh, that cover in my iTunes and I dig it. You still have it? Well, you sent it to me. I think you downloaded it. You still have it from like two days ago. Yeah, no, I'm saying like I I I actually downloaded it. Uh, what yeah. I meant to say is I actually downloaded it before it got taken off. So thankfully I have a copy of it. What do you mean downloaded it before it got taken? You downloaded da- it from when I sent it to you. Yeah, from when you sent it to me. Yeah, I downloaded it like four years ago, and then it got taken down at some point within the last four years. Oh, so it wasn't something that was recently posted. No, no, no. Oh, okay. this, this is this is uh this is going way back. Oh, okay. I don't. Um, I, I I didn't realize that it it had. Uh, it had that long of a uh, time yeah. on SoundCloud. He's been around. Like I think I discovered him back in the in our Mew days, uh, in the day. Yeah. And his cover of the song "Loving the Alien." "Loving the Alien" isn't a particularly number one Bowie song by any means. It was on the album "Tonight," which I own on vinyl only because it was one of those albums that you always see in the used vinyl bins at record stores. So I figured I had to get it eventually. It's a um, weird song. Yeah. And the number, the sort of big hit of that album was the song Blue Jean, which isn't like an overly, you know, number one boy song either, but that kind of gives you a context of the sort of caliber of this album, I guess. Mm-hmm. Since hearing Joel Henry Little's cover of that song, I've realized that it's a little more based on the live version of Loving the Alien that Bowie did, I think, while he was on tour for the reality album. So it was a relatively, in the grand scheme of things, more recent live version that he was more or less covering in uh, in Joel in Joel's version. But that was the first time I'd really heard the song because I hadn't really listened to the Tonight album that much or the live version that was created. So Joel Henry Little, a lot of his songs are essentially him singing with guitar often with some other instruments accompanying it but at the core that's what his his songs are about his vocals are very i like his vocals a lot because it feels like they're at a level that if i aspired to sing as well as him and put in the effort and time i could achieve that but they're also very distinct in their own context Uh, he has a good vibrato when he does extended notes that doesn't sound too advanced or complicated but sounds really good in his delivery he's a a level of musician that i really aspire to because of that what not that I, i'm not like giving him i'm not saying these as negatives to him I'm, I'm saying it as i want to aspire to be his level because that's achievable in my eyes because it's, it sounds really good the way he delivers his own persona on things but that song was taken off so i'm recommending another upload of a cover song that he did of uh, a song called the girl from impanima 
Ipanema. Uh, yeah. Girls from Ipanema. Yeah. What did I say? Antonio, uh, I think you said in Panema. Oh, well, I meant yeah, in Panema. Ipanema. It's, it's in Ipanema. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like that song. And he does a really cool cover of it. I agree. So that one, he uh, it's him on guitar, and then he has a sort of synthy thing doing a, the sort of harmony melodies. And then he has his sister singing in Portuguese for the Portuguese sections of it. And it's so fucking satisfying when, when they're both singing the different parts. And it really, uh, it's it's one of my more favorite versions of the song because I've heard it the most especially of covers of the song it's probably my favorite cover of that song so I recommend Joel Henry Little on SoundCloud I believe he also does some original music but his covers of some well-known songs as well as lesser known songs by people are very good yeah actually um, so I preemptively looked up his discography on SoundCloud and uh, I I think it's spectacular I think he's a great singer-songwriter I actually listened to, uh, and I'm, I'm. There's no way that I'm going to be able to pronounce this, uh, Ifatha or something like that. His album, which he released last year or three months ago, it looks like. I think last year because it was released in 2019. Uh, I listened to some cuts off that album, and I just thought it was, uh, it's really good. Uh, it's there's commendable recording quality, and like you said, he's uh, a someone who has clearly honed the craft of of his, of his singing. Uh, he does a uh, effective vibrato, uh, and also when he does reach into the upper register, like his falsetto is an overly throaty and kind of restrained. It's it's very kind of resonant. I actually highly recommend that that album because there's some really interesting songwriting and also composition on that album. There's almost like a narrative element to it. There's a uh, it's like a concept album essentially. Um, okay. And uh, I didn't really read into the what the concept really was, but uh, I thought the songwriting was really good. Uh, it's it's clear to me that he's you know had something that he's honed over years. Like he, uh, according to his uh, either his SoundCloud or his uh, Bandcamp account, he had been writing since he was twelve, and you can kind of tell that uh, over many years he's kind of developed his uh, compositional style because it's very. Uh, sophisticated especially in the use of cadences and stuff that's kind of outside of the norm of your typical you know expected chord progressions and stuff like that so uh yeah i totally agree i would recommend his material as well and uh uh surprise i actually hadn't uh, listened to a lot of his stuff before now but uh yeah good stuff good stuff while you were talking about that i i purchased the album it's like it's it, that's like pronunciation level yeah, it's, twenty. It, it's spelled E P H P H A T H A exclamation point. Yeah, it's a biblical reference. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of biblical, my recommendation for the SoundCloud segment of this podcast is Hildegard von Blingen, who I mean Blingen. it's it's a reference obviously to the medieval composer Hildegard von Bingen who is, uh, I believe, a German composer, or, you know, the, the, you know, the borders and lines of the, of the old medieval world were not the same as well, what we know of. So I have no idea where they were originally from. Hildegard von Bingen, it sounds very Germanic. But anyway, but what Hildegard von Blingen is, is that it is a modern uh, covers of uh, songs that we would recognize, more contemporary songs, like uh, 
one of the greatest covers of Radiohead's Creep that I've heard is uh, Hildegard von Blingen's version, especially at the point where the bridge of the song, the, the big falsetto climax where Tom York sings, you know, she is right uh mm-hmm. the, that's the only part of the song where they introduce the vocal harmony and it sounds uh, amazing i shouldn't say that it's necessarily exactly in the style of hildegard von bingen uh it's actually just in kind of like loose more of like a referential to any kind of material from the uh middle ages so there's a lot of like bard type songs like it's not uh church music or anything like that it, it feels a little more there's a little more, it's a little more rhythmic there's it's not like one drone and if you're familiar with uh, a lot of medieval music it's very monophonic there's not a lot of harmony if there is then it's usually somebody singing over a drone tone or something like that but uh, just to give you some examples of the songs that uh, uh, she has covered i think it's just one person we have creep uh, bad romance obviously by uh, lady gaga Pumped Up Kicks by uh, whoever, uh, Foster the People, I think. And obviously, What is Love? Uh, Baby, Don't Hurt Me. Don't Hurt Me. No more. Is this the one that you sent me a couple days ago? Yeah, like yesterday or the day before. Yeah, I, I followed uh, I followed them on YouTube before you'd even sent me that. Yeah, oh, I've cool. Heard, I've yeah. heard most of those covers. They're beautiful. Uh, like, just beautiful, yeah. like, singing. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, the creep one was in particular I really liked. Like I, I'm, I don't really know uh, the original song super well. I've heard it once or twice. Yeah, it's a song that most people associate with Radiohead, even though it's yeah. not. It shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, I've I've not uh, delved deep into Radiohead, mm-hmm. um, but I had stumbled across those songs on YouTube within the past week or two, uh, and they are quite good. Yeah, uh, I just, uh, I love the, the singing and uh, obviously the arrangements. More so, actually, the Bad Romance one has a really cool kind of bar, more of like a, what would you call it? Like more of an ensemble type arrangement rather than just like it's more around the soloist. But mm-hmm. uh, all of them are very nice, very beautiful. And yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty much all I have to say. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely continue to listen to them. Good shit, good shit. Uh, is that about it? Uh, yeah, say sa. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spin This Podcast, a podcast where Sam Dow and Aiden Claire talk about music and everything spinning around in the music world and everything that has happened musically. I've been Sam Dow. And I'm Aiden Claire. And thank you for listening.